It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everybody. And before we dig into this week's program, a few things I'd like to mention. First, a hearty cheers to our listeners in Brisbane and Sydney, Australia. Elgin and Lubbock, Texas, Tecumseh, Ontario, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Chicago, Illinois, and our top two cities of Portland and Seattle, Washington, you all make up our top 10 most popular cities for listening to the Airhead 247 podcast. Well done, everybody. Also, greetings and salutations to our listeners across the globe in Madrid, Spain, Port Elizabeth, South Africa, and to all Airhead enthusiasts around the world. We're glad you're tuned in and along for the ride. Remember, we can be reached directly via email, airheads247 at hotmail.com. Be sure you add the S, that's airheads247 at hotmail.com. Drop us a line, say hello, or maybe share a story of you and your bike with a photograph that we might share with everyone in a future episode. We'd certainly love to hear from you. Finally, be sure to rate and review the program, especially if you are accessing us through Apple Podcasts. Your feedback will help the program continue to grow. Should mention, along with our producer, Jeff Glover, we're frantically working on expanding the podcast with some new content and things to share with you in the new year ahead. All right. When we think of legacy BMW motorcycle dealers in the United States, one name always comes to mind. That's Bob's BMW in Jessup, Maryland. Bob Henning started out as a used parts dealer and later expanded that mail order parts business to become one of the best known and longest tenured dealers in the United States. It should come as no surprise with that history and legacy that Bob has plenty to share and some amazing stories to tell. So much so, we're going to split this interview into two programs, part one being this week and part two, as we normally do, a couple weeks down the road. So let's get into it. It's Bob Hennig on the Airhead 247 podcast. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Bob Hennig, uh, excellent to visit with you today. I'm really excited to talk with you. Before we get into uh, sort of the prepared questions, uh, I've been keeping tabs on uh, kind of what you got going in and out of the shop there. And here recently, I see you've got a really nice R100R Classic. Uh, for ah. You've got that for sale. Now, co correct me if I'm wrong here. I also understand you might also have another one that's sort of uh, been put up and is in just extremely amazing original condition. So if I'm right there, tell me about both those bikes. Well, I will. I'm happy to. Um, that was a, That's a great observation and takeaway from visiting the website. And um, I am a fan of that bike. It'll come up later in our conversation uh, if we get to some or all the questions. So 
Um, I've been a fan of Airheads all my life. That's where I started. And I have to introduce that before I get into the 95 on our showroom floor. Um, I literally spent the better part of three years chasing down that uh, Canadian version. Um, it's the second one I've been able to pull out of Canada, which is its own complicated, royal pain-in-the-ass process, even more so during COVID. And uh, it's a very special bike. Um, I got it from the second owner. The first owner didn't have it very long. And my core of being an Airhead fan, of being a BMW fan, is that of all the Airheads they ever made, and they built some great bikes, everyone's visual attraction to any motorcycle is going to vary, of course. But I think that the last bikes they built, and that's the way it should be, actually, actually, was the best chassis they ever put on an Airhead in their entire history. And... I was attracted to them uh, long before they got to the last year. Um, I have um, serial number one from 1992 um, that's currently sitting in my office but about to move over to the museum. And that came along after I was able to buy the very last R100R that BMW built um, and the last 1,000cc air-cooled carbureted twin that BMW built. And that was a six-month conversation with BMW, but thankfully they – agreed to my ask, even though there was some interesting dancing going on. Um, <laughs> if we have a minute, I'll, I'll fill you in, and we'll come back to the one that's for sale. Yeah, please tell me. So, so let me jump so, in there. Let me jump in real quick and just say sure. you mentioned uh, that particular bike, uh, the last series of the R100R, probably, arguably, the best uh, of the series, and why not? I mean, they had all that time to refine everything. I owned a Mystic for a number of years, and the great thing about that R100R series for me, and especially that classic model, is uh, it represented sort of the the best of everything, along with the classic looks and lines of what we all knew and loved about the earlier models. And they just rode wonderfully. The engines performed nice. Uh, some... I've heard some people call them, you know, occasionally parts bins bikes because they were pulling stuff off K models to put on there, which is neither here nor there by my count. But I have to agree with you. Uh, one of my Mount Rushmore, uh, we'll talk about that later, that particular yep. bike is on my list of, of to have. So, yeah, tell me the story about how you got the uh, previous one. So uh, back in 1993, I was fortunate enough to win a bidding war that went around this entire country. Um, but was not the high bidder on a brand-new 1972 R75-5. It had never been out of the crate. Wow. Um, when word got out that this bike was out there, a California dealer um, had it. He had always hoped to have a museum and a larger collection. That one bike was literally as far as he ever got in collecting on a serious level, and it sat in his warehouse for all those years. Um, and there were people that were throwing, you know, it, it began to get insane, and again, this is, decades ago, and eventually he started asking questions of the various bidders because it wasn't in an actual auction. There were just conversations going on and offers being tendered, and I brought up to the seller's attention that I said, you know, this bike needs to probably come out of the crate, but it needs to be cared for and loved in the condition that it is. I understand what you wanted to do. I'm already doing that. I have a museum to put it in. It's not... It's, it's much larger now than it was then. And I said, 
I'd like to be the one to take it out of this crate, you know, erase all the dust and grime that, you know, at that point, several decades of Cosmoline had attracted and share a perfect, as it came off the assembly line, motorcycle. And in the end, um, that little tug at his heart and what his mission had been that he didn't succeed in uh, allowed me to buy that motorcycle. And we uncovered it, uh, we uncreated it uh, the day of uh, the evening that we introduced the earth-shattering, world-shattering R1100RS to a sellout crowd of about 200 customers at a catered event. And we had four bikes under covers, three R1100RSs in the three colors that were available, and a brand-new Slash 5. And the Slash 5 is the one that came out from under the covers first after everyone had had a drink in their hand. And, uh, and I said, and here's the new twin. And, of course, I wasn't wrong. But um, so that set in motion. I ended up with, a, in my possession, never owned this one, a brand-new 1981 R80GS that I was a caretaker of for at least 15 years. And so as 1995 rolls around and BMW says we're not going to make them anymore for all the reasons they put on the table, I said, I want the last one. And I fully expected that they would come back to me and say, you can't have the last one, Bob. It's a nice ask, but we're going to keep the last one for our museum. It is, after all, going to be the last motorcycle. And uh, months go by, and I keep ticking them. So we haven't made our decision yet. Eventually, they come back to me. It's a phone call. I've got three or four people from BMW management on the phone, including one from Germany. So they've put a, put a lot of effort into this reply. And they said, we will sell you the last bike, but we won't guarantee it's the last bike. And I'm sort of going, WTF. I said, it either is or it isn't. Yeah. And I I said, you got to explain that. And he said, well, you know, we get to the end of production. Sometimes there's demand, there's spare parts. We can build another 10, another 50 of a model. It might go to one market. It might go to several markets. So we always have to protect ourselves. And I said, okay, I get that. Totally good answer. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I said, if that happens, okay, because it could happen with any model in any year. I said, I would like you to sell me the last bike again. And now there is dead silence on their end of the phone because they hadn't thought that far ahead. (laughs) And so, but in about five minutes time, we come to an agreement and they say, we will sell you the last bike. And if we produce more, we'll give you an opportunity to buy the last bike again. And that is exactly what happened. Um, In, I guess, late September, we got what was the last bike by VIN number, according to production that time. Within a week of that bike going up on the warehouse shelf, because I knew that this was a possibility and had to wait it out, um, I got a phone call and said, we're building 50 more R100R classics. Uh, the United States market is going to get 20 of them. The other 30 are going to two other markets. Do you still want the last one? And I said, yes. And they said, what's going to happen to the other one? I said, I've got a list of seven or eight people at this point that wish they had stepped up earlier. I think we probably sold more than double the number of R100Rs in 1995 of any other dealer just because I had put my two cents into saying, this is a bike you should own. And um, in late November, my second last bike shows up. We delivered the first one uh, to the first person in line said yes, and uh, he took it home. And we took that bike and put it in the warehouse for a while. And then when we moved into, as we were moving into the new dealership location, I said, we're going to display that bike in the crate because the crates were already beginning to change for the other bikes. And we used to take people into the warehouse all the time and show them either a bike or their bike in the crate. Um, and people got a big kick out of it. And I said, all right, here's another piece of history. We'll display it. 
And our mezzanine in the showroom has, I think, three bikes or two, three bikes on one side, two bikes in the sidecar on the other, and the R100R still in the original crate. It's never been out. And the perhaps the amusing part of the story, and sorry to eat up a little bit more of the time in this one, but it's a good one, yeah. uh, is that a number of years later, um, one of our customers called me up and said, and normally this would go to my staff at that point in time. This is maybe six years ago, seven years ago. And he said, I've got an R100R to sell. And I said, great, we would love to have an R100R. It pained me every day to see this bike in the crate because I loved the bike, wanted to ride one. Probably should have kept both, you know. I'm not uh, that wealthy, um, not wealthy at all, in my opinion. Um, but I like having fun with motorcycles. Yeah. And and he said, well, this one's pretty special. And I said, I get that. Everyone thinks their bike is special. I said, I've got a pretty special one, too. And he said, yeah, I know. It's in the crate. I see it all the time. You guys sold me this bike back in 1992. And I said, okay, if that's what makes it special, I'm happy to add to the fun. He said, no, 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 this is the first bike you sold. And I said, no, the first bike we sold was the year before in 1991. It was a K75. That person is still a customer of ours. And said, no, this is the first R100 you sold. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm sort of doing this dance with him. Yeah. And, um, and I said, okay, it makes it special, but it doesn't actually add value. And he says, no, 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 I'm not saying this right. I said, Bob, it's the first one ever sold. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's serial number one. And so now there's silence on my end of the phone. <laughs> and I'm going, how is it possible that my staff sold you, that by luck of the draw, we get that bike to begin with, and that my staff sold that to you without ever bringing to my attention, hey, Bob, you got to <laughs> number one. Do you want it? So all these things are happening. And I said, yes, it is special um, since I've got the last one. Obviously, you know that that would be a particularly interesting acquisition for me. Let me know when you want to come by, and we'll have a cup of coffee. We'll look at the bike, and we'll and we'll uh, do an evaluation. And I can't imagine we won't come to terms. And so all that came to be. And so I have that as a running motorcycle. Uh, first year was a silver frame and single disc and a little bit different paint job, right. and stuff like that. And uh, so that was a treat. And uh, I only keep so many bikes running at any one time. So I pickled that, and it's on display in my office at the moment. Wow. About two years after that, the customer that bought the first last bike called me up, same sort of conversation. He said, remember that bike you said that was going to be yours, and then you got another one? I said, yeah. He says, well, I've not put that many miles on it, and um, I'm sort of aging out, and would you like it back? And I said, absolutely. And so we came to terms over the next couple of days. His bike was in need of a bunch of service. He had really not put a lot of miles on it. I think I put more miles on it in the first year than he had in the last 20 years. And But I used that as my daily rider R100R. So I have that one in the garage still. Um, I've ridden it uh, to a bunch of rallies and taken it out for lots of fun rides. And so I still get the one to look at in the crate. And I've got the first last one as well which sort of amuses me, although I don't think it counts for a lot in terms of value. Um, but I, I just love the bikes. They are just fabulous platforms. They handle well. They look great. They bring you back to the very first BMW by styling, even though there's a lot of difference between an R100R and an R32. And um, it's been a treat. And so as a result of that, I have made a point to work extra hard to find R100s when I can. I own a 1995 Mystic myself as well. Um, I go back and forth as to whether I like the standard R100R Classic or the Mystic more in terms of styling, because it was just a styling exercise. Yeah. But 
But um, so uh, this one came through one of our website leads. Somebody sent in the information, said, I've got this bike for sale. It's in Canada. And um, are you interested? And we started our conversation. He was not in a rush. And so you have to sometimes dance at the customer's pace. Yep. I'm happy to do that. Sometimes it happens in days. Sometimes it happens in years. And because of the pandemic, and he was originally going to bring it down to us, he wanted to visit the dealership, see the museum, all this other stuff. It dragged on and on and on. Um, eventually, uh, my general manager ended up being the one to go pick it up in Canada. And to do that, we had to have all this extra paperwork this time, a broker involved, which we were able to avoid three years earlier when I got the first one out of Canada. And he had to get a COVID test within 72 hours of crossing the border for literally 20 minutes. Wow. We, this all happened in a parking lot at the border crossing um, north of Buffalo. I mean, honestly, I have to say I'm amazed that you were even able to pull it off. I know Canada has been really tight and restrictive, uh, and that's their prerogative. Oh, it, 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 yes. Well, we have total respect for that. Yeah. I even found that my, my general manager, fabulous human being that he is, is also a vegan. I, my wife and I eat a lot of vegan, too. And so my mission, if he was going to be the one going up instead of me, on this trip was that um, I find him a good hotel nearby and I find him a good vegan restaurant and I succeeded in both counts. So we had a good road trip and a good night stay and a good meal and a, a very smooth transaction. He got to meet the guy I wanted to meet personally, but uh, we had so many conversations on the phone leading up to that. I feel like I know him anyway, and one day he'll be down. So there you go. So well, we, we, we took that bike and, did all the refurbishing that we normally would do, reconditioning, some people call it, to make it as safe and roadworthy, comfortable and fun, and as pretty as possible without restoration or anything like that. We typically like to keep paint original and all that other stuff. Indeed. And this is, and, and my staff knows I came very close to keeping not only this one, but the first Canadian bike, because they've got some features, including 40-millimeter carburetors and larger valves in the heads that the U.S. models did not get. Okay, I didn't know that. So it's kind of a Euro-spec bike, then? Essentially, they are, yeah. Yeah, okay, interesting. Uh, well, let me ask you a couple follow-up questions on a, on a few things there uh, you mentioned, uh, going back to buying uh, those bikes from BMW directly. So, my, I'm, and believe me, I'm not saying this to be contentious here at all, my understanding was that the actual last sort of airhead was one of the R80 GS Basics, the blue frames. Am I mistaken well, there? You are not mistaken. I qualified my comment earlier. This was the last 1,000cc. Oh, fair, yes. Okay. I missed that, and, yes. And, and BMW honored that. And yep. the, oh, the only market that got the R80 uh, GS, essentially, was Europe. That's right. They didn't bring those into the United States, and they made it a very special bike, but they decided that, okay, we can come back. We can have one more hurrah. Again, back to that parts bin, we've got all the stuff that's already produced. It won't take us long to make more of this, 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 and this. So they made a second special bike, and I've long thought about dragging one of those out of Europe, but um, my taste leaned toward the earlier GSs, and this was sort of a special tribute model. Right. I'm not necessarily married to that uh, genre, so I was perfectly happy to have the last 1,000cc Miracle Twin and, in fact, to BMW's credit, they not only sold me that bike twice, but on the second bike, they gave me copies of the shipping uh, information. They gave me a letter that says this is the, you know, day it was built, all this other stuff. But they even gave me the name of the ship that it was on. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's neat to have all that kind of information, uh, provenance with the bike, for sure. Yeah, um, and, and clearly you know your history well. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 Airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 Valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 Valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. And so the last thing I want to mention um, uh, with the R, speaking about the R100R, is around that time, of course, that was, as we all know, the last of the airheads, 95 uh, into 96 or whatever, whenever that was. What was uh, your reaction to knowing that production line was ending, your customers' reaction, and how did folks sort of handle the transition? And let me add a caveat there by saying, when that happened, I'm going to age myself here so I can give you some perspective. And around, I graduated from college in 92. I was fortunate enough to go to college in Athens, Ohio, where Kent Holt had his dealership. So that was my introduction uh, to Airheads when I was in college. And I remember seeing some of the last era of those bikes at the time. And that's when I really fell in love with them. Parenthetically, I bought an old Slash 5 uh, while I was still there from them. But mm -hmm. what uh, just turn the clock back uh, somewhat here. And what was the general reaction knowing that this was the last of those bikes and now it's a, it's a whole new model? Um, two, two comments. I want to preface it all by the fact, uh, by saying uh, I've known Kent and Nancy and Marvin for at least 40 years. Good friends. I watched them go from independent paint shop to dealer, back to independent paint shop. Fabulous people. I've been to Athens several times, uh, hung out with them at countless rallies and have numerous stories to tell about all three of those great people. Yep. Um, and an interesting, and uh, since you've been there, it's an interesting little shop. It is. Um, so it was not as earth-shattering as I thought it would be. You know, we had already gone through the point where BMW had introduced four-cylinder and then three-cylinder motorcycles. The number of people that said, I will never ride one of those, you know, you'll have to pry my airhead out of my cold, dead hands. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden, the same people that said that that were part of the high mileage community are out there and they got 250,000 miles on their K100 RS or their K100 RT. And 
people people moved on. They eventually grasped it. Then the R11 series came out, and we went through this one more time. So by the time the airheads were coming to an end, it was not the abrupt stop or transition that it might have been if they had said, we're not making them anymore in 1983 when the first K100 came out. And, you know, so that extra dozen years made quite a difference. I think people began to see the handwriting on the wall, that technology is moving on. People got introduced to catalytic converters and all this other technology that allowed us to have cutting-edge motorcycles that also passed emissions, that were also a little bit greener, that had things like ABS brakes and electronic systems that allowed us to do more. I mean, yeah, you know, if you want to be broken down on the side of the road and you have basic mechanical skills, you want to be broken down on an airhead. I am in that camp. <laughs> yes. Everything else could be more complicated. <laughs> That's right. But, but BMW, uh, I think, did one of the best jobs of any manufacturer in terms of setting people up, both the consumers and the dealers, for the fact that one day this is going to happen. There were little hints along the way. You know, eventually the press got tidbits and wrote articles and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, in a, had it been different, um, BMW would have had to produce 10 times the number of R100Rs they did because the dealers were screaming, you've got to build more. You can't just build this few few hundred bikes. And so it was actually a very smooth transition. Um, it has always helped when any popular model has been discontinued, whether completely or just that particular year and model and color, um, down the road for used bike values and stuff like that. But it was not uh, – people didn't freak out and jump off the window ledges. In their <laughs> That's funny. All right, let's transition a little bit here. Uh, and you, you made a great comment uh, in a little email exchange we had before we got on the phone today. Uh, you had gone back and listened to the chat uh, we had with uh, Ted Porter, and you mentioned yes. his, uh, his tone and cadence, and uh, you're 100% right. Ted, uh, I think, could do voiceover work if he wanted. He's a pleasure to listen to talk. I love his speaking style and his, his calm demeanor and the way he just approaches things. And that's kind of a, a transition here to say, when I spoke with him, I did not know uh, the history that he had with you and helping get Bob's BMW open. So let's backtrack a little bit and sort of wherever you want to start the story, how you know, and I know you could wax on for hours on this, but, you know, how Bob's came about and how guys like uh, Ted Porter, who we spoke with, and also Bud Proven, uh, who we have an episode with, uh, were integral in uh, helping get off the ground and building success and your relationship with them then and now. Going back to the beginning um, of at least Bob's used parts, that all grew out of my introduction to BMW Motorcycles. By casual passing, as I was when I was a little kid, you know, long before I turned 13, one of my next door neighbors around the corner, his son, who was the wild kid in the neighborhood, had an old BMW R50 or R60. Could have been that, or maybe an R50 R60 slash two. Wasn't an R69s because I've got a picture of him that his dad gave me. He used to go flying with his father years later, um, not knowing him when uh, when I was a kid, and. Um, he gave me this picture of his son riding his R50 or R60 off-road, and he is easily four or five feet off the ground, um, <laughs> you know, treating it like a dirt bike, but yeah. it's still in complete street dress. And so that was my first introduction to these cool motorcycles. I had friends that grew up with mini bikes. I had one, too. 
eventually in high school, um, my first year, one of my best friends, older brother, had a Suzuki uh, TS250. Um, that's how I, the bike I learned to ride on, literally. And during the course of uh, going through high school, I put more miles on that bike than the two of them combined and eventually bought a brand-new Suzuki TS250 when I graduated high school in 1972. During high school, uh, one of my closest friends, his brother-in-law, was a member of the Hells Angels, um, but he was not your typical Hells Angels member. He was an artist, and he was an honorary member because he could build stuff out of metal, and he could paint. He could do all this stuff that not all those other people could. But he wrote an R75-5 in 1971. Hmm. And so Paul actually gave me my first ride on a BMW uh, somewhere before I graduated high school. And ugly duckling that everyone called them back then. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was hooked. There was just something, maybe it was because it was different, and I had a different car than everyone else in high school, um, or two, actually. And, but I was hooked. I just liked the way they sounded, the way they looked. Paul had a big gas tank on his, and I liked that better than the small gas tank. Mm -hmm. And um, there was something about that, the way it hummed. And so uh, after putting 20,000 miles on my little 250, using it more for traveling, it was sort of an extension of backpacking for me than for off-roading, even though I did a little bit of both. I went looking for my next motorcycle. It needed to be big. My friends were saying, you need something big so you can travel, Bob. And uh, the dealer that I bought the Suzuki from was also a Honda dealer. And at the, in 1976, there was this beautiful uh, Honda 750 4 uh, sport model that was really pulling at my heartstrings. And I think I could have afforded it. It was, you know, right around maybe eighteen dollars to $2,200. I don't remember exactly. But the BMW is still digging a hole in the back of my head. And we had no BMW dealer in our close-by region. I would have had to travel to the other side of Baltimore at the time. I think that was the closest place or maybe down to Morton's in Fredericksburg, Virginia, which was 100 miles. And the Morton's is still open, by the way, we should and, say. And yep. Morton's is still open. I've, uh, I, Jeff Massey, his wife Hannah, and many of their staff, I've known for a very long time, very good people. Yeah. And, and so I started looking around, see what was available used. And lo and behold, I find this 1972 R75-5 in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, maybe 8 or 10 miles from where I lived at the time. And a uh, guy had moved from California a year earlier, not riding the bike. Long story short, I bought a bike for about $1,100 that was a bit neglected, had about 10,000 miles on it. The, uh, the damage to the top of the gas tank and the seat never went away. It was parked under a crab apple tree in his backyard, <laughs> even though he had a, a two-car garage that wasn't full. I never understood that. But that was my introduction to BMWs, to the uh, local not the club yet, but just people that rode them. Uh, I went out and bought a repair manual for the bike and started doing some of the basic maintenance and service. And the day I finally hit my first wall and I couldn't figure out how to do something, um, a woman who I was very friendly with in high school, I knew her dad had a BMW. I'd never met her dad. I'd never seen his motorcycle, but she always talked about it. And I called up Lisa and I said, who works on your dad's bike? And she said, I can't remember his name, but my dad stopped doing, he used to run a painting business. He now owns a local Dunkin' Donuts store. She said, go on up there, talk to my dad, introduce yourself, and I'm sure he'll hook you up. And so he hooked me up with a guy named Ed Sweeney, and I met dozens of people in this casual, informal BMW motorcycle gang. I call it a gang instead of a club because 
Um, it was people my age and people old enough to be my grandfather. And uh, I just got immersed in the BMW world. And then the next step was having my BMW parked out in front of a camera store that I managed for a couple of years. And one of my customers one day said, you know, I got a BMW too, and you know about the local club and all this other stuff. And uh, lo and behold, um, in 1977 maybe, I went to my first local BMW rally thanks to Jeff, and then I went to uh, the Four Winds Rally, and then, sorry, I went to the National Rally in Vermont, and then I went to the Four Winds Rally in Pennsylvania, and the Finger Lakes Rally in New York. It was an epic year for for someone that is sort of a solo uh, traveler to all of a sudden be immersed in this BMW community. And it was fabulous. And so I was, I was uh, running my own home improvement business. I was a freelance photographer. I was a serial entrepreneur at that point in my life. But that set in motion something I didn't know that would take place until some years later. In 1981, I crashed a uh, hybrid R90S, R100S that I had built. Um, neither bike was bad to begin with. It just was something a friend and I used to do in his garage, a guy named Larry uh, Burstein. And uh, we used to hang out at Larry's garage and, and do maintenance for other people and some modifications and, and just sort of pay for our hobby. And uh, that incident put me in the hospital for a week, and my orthopedic surgeon and my doctor said, you should probably figure out something else to do besides the construction business and uh, toting around an 80-pound camera bag because you did a lot of damage to your shoulder. And, um, you know, in the hospital for a week, and then I'm recuperating at home, and the only other thing in my life that I really loved was motorcycles. And having gone to rallies for a number of years as an enthusiast um, and seeing a few people dabble in used parts and a few dealers showing up, I've met Chris Hodgson from San Jose, you know, in their earliest days, and, you know, we're still friends today. Um I saw an opportunity because nobody was really bringing any credibility. Um, and there were lots of ads in the back of mag- enthusiast magazines to buy this used part or that used part. But, the but, not, yeah, but not, a big, not a big clearinghouse or somebody who specialized in that, per se. Literally nobody. Yeah. And, and what was going on the most was that people kept buying stuff that was supposed to fit their bike but didn't fit their bike. Or they had, you know, an answer, an ad in the enthusiast magazine, and sometimes I got this perfect gas tank on the shelf, and it would show up, and it's got a dent in one side. <laughs> yeah. On and on with the horror stories. So the basic concept was that I would guarantee what I sold and how I sold it. And so this was long before the Internet. You know, the only way you could get a picture was to shoot a roll of 35-millimeter film and <laughs> mail someone a picture. <laughs> That's right. Um, I guaranteed my description on the phone. You know, if I spent 10 minutes on the phone with someone that was looking for a gas tank for a 1976 uh, R75-6 in a particular color, and I said there is a nickel-sized dent one inch below the gas tank logo on the left-hand side, by God, when it showed up, that's what it was, and that's where it was. And we built a reputation of providing great customer service, um, and Bob's Used Parts was born. Um, the amusing part was that the first rally I went to, I borrowed my um, now wife's, but at the time, barely girlfriend's father's 200,000-mile Chevy van to load up all the stuff I had bought at that point in time. Wow. And so, Bob, very quickly, uh, buying and selling uh, used parts, the uh, dismantling of perfectly good motorcycles and the occasional neglected, damaged, or even crashed motorcycle, uh, I quickly learned that in order to sell somebody uh, um, the right side uh, 
fork leg so they could turn their R90 slash six into a dual disc bike, and mm-hmm. the list is endless after that. You know, they need new gaskets and seals and a whole bunch of other stuff, new right. brake pads. And, and so I started uh, um, snooping around, and turns out there were probably 100 different people in the United States prior to my coming up with Bob's Used Parts that had been a BMW dealer at one time or another from the mid-'50s up until the early-'80s. And while some of these places were, you know, some of these deals are obviously still around, most had closed their doors. Some had just put the stuff in the back room because they wanted other businesses, other brands, all that stuff. And I just started doing basic research, going back and looking at all the old dealer directories that ever existed, back to when they were first published because they used to come with a motorcycle, and just started tracing everyone down. And I eventually probably bought 65 or 70 dealer inventories. Um, and ended up with a lot of new old stock parts, which helped in the early days supply that stuff. But gaskets and seals and some other stuff only last so long. BMW used to package all their parts in these glassine envelopes, and nuts and bolts and uh, piston rings and a whole bunch of other critical parts would rust in those bags. It was was bad technology. They thought, Mm. hey, someone will get this, they'll sell it right away, there's no issue. But, in fact, sitting on a shelf in maybe a less-than-humidity-controlled dealership, Things died early deaths. Rubber disintegrated in bags. So I was looking for other sources. The very first dealer that wholesaled me parts was Morton's BMW. How about that? I used to be a retail customer of those before I got into the used parts business. So, you know, we go way back. I outgrew them very quickly because they were in a Quonset hut. And uh, I was ordering more parts from them, uh, you know, from BMW through them in a month than they were ordering in a quarter. And uh, so I had to move on to somebody else. The dollar and the uh, Deutschmark exchange rate was heavy to us. I started making contacts in Germany because I was going there for a lot of flea markets to find rare bits and pieces for old and new motorcycles and started importing hundreds of thousands of dollars of new inventory every year from Germany to supplement the used parts business because what I discovered back then is that there was, with the exception of BMW Motorrad St. Louis, the original operation, uh, there was nobody really in the business of selling people parts um, over the phone, by fax, uh, mail order in its earliest days, with the exception of Capital Cycle, which Ted worked at and grew out of a messenger service that's right. by a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. So all, all the mixed history is quite interesting. Yeah, so, and let, let me jump in there and say, you know, uh, that's there's some timing there and some good fortune mixed with a bad fortune, I guess. And just reflecting on what you, the story you told me there, the motorcycle crash in its own way was sort of an impetus to get you started. Uh, and Absolutely. Yeah. And then secondarily, the timing aspect of everything, when you got into this, it just so happened, you know, there were a number of dealers either, as you mentioned, their doors were closed or they didn't have any further interest or what have you. And you were able to go out and it really, at, it sounds like a prime time, uh, get a lot of that new old stock or used stock inventory. You know, it's real similar to uh, what happened with the record collectors, 78 record collectors yeah. in the late 60s and 70s. I had a friend, uh, Bob, um, Richard Height, whose brother Bob Height was in Canned Heat. And they used to, of course, travel around the U.S. all the time. And they were sort of the right timing. They would just go through little towns 
go to record uh, flea markets and record shops and what have you, and they just amassed a wonderful uh, collection of old blues uh, and folk music 78s at the time. And it was one of those cases where the timing was right and everything just worked out. And that seemed, sounds to be sort of the case with you there. So kudos. Uh, I completely agree. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. I mean, there were there were uh, long trips and sweaty days mm-hmm. and, and all the other stuff, but there were treasures to be found. Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who, coincidentally, are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal, to add 200 new members. And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Or go to the description section in this podcast. We've popped a direct link right there. We want to say thank you to the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast, where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 Airhead. That website, once again, for your free membership, 247.bmwmoa.org. Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Um, one of my fondest amusing memories, there are people that have pictures of this besides me, but at one of the uh, Dutch country rider rallies in, in near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, they used to have a theme for each rally. And at the Wild West show, um, you know, half, half the attendees have brought along something to make them look like a cowboy or a cowgirl or an Indian. Okay. And I'm sitting on, sitting on the back of this 10-foot uh, cube van that they used to have to go set up at rallies, and I'm eating dinner. And sitting on the back of the, uh, the back of the truck, uh, the foreground is tables full of new parts and used parts and all that stuff. And I've, I've got a cowboy hat on too. And uh, <laughs> there's this little box that is about two inches wide by two inches high and about four, maybe five inches long, sitting next to me on the inside of that truck because there was a lot of inventory inside the truck as well. And on the R- end of the box, it says R69 logos. <laughs> And this was the little uh, pot metal chromed R69S logo that went on the back of the fenders on an R69S. Right. Yep. Follow you. And, and one of the treasures amongst many, many that came out of those dealer inventories was finding those because they weren't being produced by BMW anymore. And at that rally, um, I think I think the box had eight or nine at the beginning of the rally, and it probably had six or seven or seven or eight at the end of the rally. And this is, you know, many decades ago. Um, but nonetheless, a bunch of people that wanted one were beating me up over the fact that I was asking the audacious price of $35. You know, they were already in L.A., and nobody was doing any reproductions yet. Uh, we did one a long time ago. And I thought, you know, when people presented me with that, I said, you know, I should just tuck this box away in my home office 
and wait 30 or 40 years. They're going to be worth $500 a piece because they're really the genuine thing. But I eventually sold them all. I kept one or two. And uh, But that's the kind of treasures. You know, we'd go through all these bags and, ooh, look at this, look at that. And uh, But a lot of it, you know, 95% of it is just daily staple stuff. But, yeah. You know, uh, tachometers for old bikes and, and impossible to find R50S valve covers and just a whole host of very rare pieces were on dealer shelves as well. Occasionally, dealers would make ordering errors and you'd find more than one of something when they shouldn't have had any of those on the shelf. You know, maybe a canceled customer order where they meant to order one, but they ordered 10 and BMW wouldn't take it back, or they weren't managing their operation well enough to know that they had 10 of something they weren't selling. So lots of interesting stories in there. I know Ted uh, touched on some of that in his commentary as well. And uh, I, too, was a, um, a retail customer of Capital Cycle. He lived. They were, you know, a main source. But eventually I cut a deal with another local dealer, a friend who was in the trucking business that bought another uh, operation that was Harley-Davidson, so he could get into the BMW business. And he was my next local wholesaler. So while I still brought lots of stuff in from Europe, stuff that I needed quicker, especially small stuff, uh, gaskets and seals and uh, special order I would do through him and I would get stuff every week. All right. So uh, we've been kind of, you've mentioned Ted Porter a few times there in the conversation. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to, oh. do you remember the first time you guys met? Oh, yes. Um, so Ted and I were part of a local community. We had a, a great overlap. Um, and, and I want to pay a compliment here to Ted. Um, in two ways. One, when I first met Ted, when we were just BMW enthusiasts, um, just starting, I, I started my business before he started his. Um, so he would come to me and get parts. And there was something about him that said, I know he's born, he was born around here. He was born up the road from me, but something about him tells me he, he's a West coast person. Years later, that truly came to be. And, and that's how he, after helping me start Bob's BMW, because he was in at the ground floor, and I'll come back to that, okay. um, he eventually said, i got to move to California. It's been in my blood and heart and brain all my life. And uh, another good mutual friend, uh, Chris and Kathleen Hodgson from San Jose BMW, uh, we'd all become friends through uh, rallies and business meetings and all this other stuff. And uh, they made him an offer that just it made it right timing for him. So with with many regrets, but also um, the warmest of uh, feelings, he moved out to California. But he returned to his roots. Um, he, he paid me a very high compliment. Um, he said, you know, if you would open up a California dealership, um, I'll work for you again. But if that's not going to be the case, and he knew that wasn't, i got to go back and work for myself again because you built something that very few people have built, which is very flattering. Um, and coming from Ted, who I hold in the highest of esteem, um, meant a lot. And so he worked for Chris and Kathleen for a number of years at San Jose, but eventually decided he had to start his own business. Ted's Beamer Shop came to be, and I have watched that evolution. We have been uh, customers and uh, friends throughout that entire tenure. But at the beginning, um, I was watching him. He was the place to go for BMW motorcycle service in the greater metropolitan Washington, Northern Virginia area, despite the fact that there were a couple of dealers, no disrespect to them. Right. Um, in fact, many times when there was a difficult warranty problem, BMW would probably pee their pants if you knew this now, but it's water under the bridge. 
both of these dealers would occasionally send him a motorcycle to fix. Okay, <laughs> they would they would provide the parts, whatever he said needed to be done, and the customer would be taken care of, and they would invoice BMW the way BMW got invoiced for warranty work at the time. So everything was good. He just wasn't a factory trained technician. Yeah, let me jump in and say that I, I like the fact that you mentioned that story. How Ted was sort of the emergency nine one one call. I had a buddy, uh, still have a friend in Memphis called Leo Goff. Uh, who, I know who Leo is. Yeah, and that he he was sort of like that too for the dealer in Memphis. Uh, they'd hit a wall and you know discreetly call Leo to bail him out. So <laughs> it's, absolutely, yeah, it's good to have guys like that. Well, and, and, you know, if, if Ted had been working for a dealer, he would have been one of the country's best master certified technicians, someone like, uh, you know, Chris Hodgson from San Jose, and there's a bunch of other people I could mention. But at any rate, I was, I was, I, I'm fortunate that I have a, a dividing line in my life that few in, in this industry have that separates the enthusiast side of me from the business side of me. I can switch gears, or I can hang out in my museum and and share stuff with people. And you want to talk about a bike to buy that takes place across the street. And Ted was spending a disproportionate amount of his time at my used parts, new parts operation, getting parts for the bikes he was working on. And in the part of his uh, podcast, I don't want to give away too much, but his is going to come out before me. Um, he mentioned, you know, you only have hours to sell. There's only so many hours in the day. You waste 15 minutes out of every hour. You're going to go out of business. Uh, it's that simple. And I said, you know, Ted, you should be turning wrenches, not over at Bob's. And, you know, you could have picked up the phone, but he's he is a, a, a textile guy. He liked to make sure the part he was getting knew or used was the exact part he needed. So he didn't have to do it twice. And I respected that. Um, but we had conversations for probably at least a year, maybe a year and a half about my bringing him in under the uh, roof of Bob's used parts. And we would create this great operation of new and used parts and service that was still independent of being an authorized BMW dealer. And we were getting close to having a meeting of the minds about that. You know, I said, look, you know, I'll build you the service department that you want. And you just have to say, hey, I need these parts and someone's going to give them to you. None of this picking up the phone and none of us running across town and wasting an hour in transit, any of that stuff. And if you tell me, hey, we're going to do a lot of this kind of work, then I'm going to put those parts on the shelf, <clears throat> which is how I learned, you know, customers would call up for the first time, and they'd say, hey, I need one of these. And i say, I don't have one, but I'll have it to you next week. I didn't just order one, ordered two, because after having that conversation, they can't be the only person that needs that part. Right. With how you, how you build the, uh, the inventory basis. And so in that same year, year and a half, um, I had been telling BMW for three or four years, that I didn't want to be a dealer. I was a happy independent. I liked running the business the way I like to run the business. I had bought out enough dealers' inventories, and none of those transactions took place without a dealer saying, here's all the shit I hate about BMW. Here's all the things that went wrong. Yeah, there's a bunch of good stuff, but everybody told you that story, whether you wanted to hear it or not. So I got quite an education. So I kept BMW at arm's length, and they wanted another dealer. And the tipping point came when I clearly saw that what would really make the part uh, that I wanted to happen between Ted and myself, Ted's, Ted's uh, Bavarian Motorhouse, uh, H-A-U-S, um, and Bob's used parts, we would become the place for not only one part of it, but all of it except for selling new motorcycles. We could add used motorcycles in, 
I just got my used dealer's license. And the local dealer that I had been wholesaling parts from, and uh, a lot of money was involved here, um, well in excess of $100,000 a year over 30 years ago. And that was a lot of parts. I didn't know how it fell in terms of the big picture. And they just kept getting greedier and greedier, wanting a larger percentage, Mm. which made it harder and harder for me to make any money as the guy in between that's actually doing the selling and supplying and stocking, because most dealers didn't stock uh, peanuts in those days, and to this day still don't stock much. And eventually BMW changed reps, and the new rep was someone I knew from the local BMW club, and Pat and I had better conversations, and I said, all right, why don't you have the dealer development people knock on my door? And so six months before we actually did this, uh, these guys show up, and we have good conversations. Things are headed down the road, and I'm looking at this from one very specific point of view. I can now buy all the parts I need at actual dealer cost. I will get the benefits that these other dealers had been getting by my buying all my parts through them. And there were trips and all sorts of bonuses involved back then. All that stuff has gone away. Um, But at the time, it was pretty lucrative. And there was even a return policy. So some of the stuff that I bought out of dealerships that was still original BMW in the package and brand new and you know, not damaged, I could send it back if I wasn't selling it. So there are all sorts of pieces to this. And then everything came to a screeching halt. Both of those people left BMW. Actually, national sales manager, deal development manager left BMW. And I was just left lingering for four months. And then four months later, literally in late November, I get a phone call and these two guys introduce themselves to me and say, Bob, we'd like to pick up where we left off. They flew down. They didn't have business cards in their hands. And uh, in the course of about three days, we put together the last of the complicated pieces, um, which included my putting in writing that I would not sell used parts on a new bike and charge them for warranty. And I said, why would I do that if you're giving me new parts for free? But yeah. <laughs> they were all, you know, the, the lawyers are always in the background. Sure. And so Ted had been involved in this conversation behind the scenes the whole time. He liked what was now happening. And so when Bob's BMW opened their doors in late December of 1990, we officially call our 1991 our first year, um, Ted Porter was there to help design and build that service department. We literally bought another condominium warehouse in that time frame, and we built a service department to his specifications. Um, and it was a fabulous time, and we, did, we worked together so well for a decade, um, and we're still friends to this day. I mean, you know, except for the fact that 3,000 miles separate frequent visits, we still see each other reasonably often, talk frequently. And um, and he helped me grow this business from a used parts operation to a nationally recognized dealership. And and uh, he played an important role. He did. Well, we'll just, we'll end that part by saying, boy, Ted, we all appreciate what you did. I've, I've been a big fan Absolutely. of his and a, and a great uh, and a longtime customer uh, of his as well. You know, you mentioned there uh, some interesting things about working with, at the time, the transition had gone from uh, Butler and Smith when um, yes. you were going to be a dealer to BMW North America. And yeah. I visited uh, with Bud Proven, who was also uh, a technician, a mechanic uh, for you for a while, I understand. And Bud told me a story that I'll get to in a minute here, which I thought was kind of funny. But you alluded to the fact that <clears throat> there were... A lot of this, how this sort of transpired, had a lot to do with personalities. 
I, I spoke with William Plam earlier today, and he said the same thing. You know, he said there was uh, seemed to be a constant rotation of reps and people uh, at headquarters in Germany, and they would change, and it would be fine, and it wouldn't be good. And so that seems to be the same experience you had. It was almost like, you know, the right people uh, and the right time all had to come together for you to sort of be able to make that agreement and make it happen. Yes, uh, very true. In fact, uh, without beating up on BMW yeah. uh, for more than a couple of seconds, uh, great company that they are, product and otherwise, um, they have a flaw that seems to be inherent in a number of German companies. They like to keep people forever. I completely respect that. We've got lots of people that have been with us for 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Um, and people come and go in shorter periods of time as is normal. But in order to, for them to keep people, they don't like people to be in one place too long. So no matter how good you are at running this department, name it, on the automotive side, the motorcycle side, the mini side, the Rolls-Royce side, doesn't matter. In two to four years, they're going to move you around into another department, to another country, to another state, hmm. something. And, and, and often is the case, have you start almost from scratch learning a whole new part of working for BMW. They think it adds a lot of value. And for all I know, I am completely wrong, and it does. But from the consumer and the dealer side that I am on, we see this constant turnover just when things are beginning to get settled and heading in the right direction. There are only two exceptions to that in my 30-plus years as an authorized BMW dealer. One was the best parts manager that the company ever had. He was, he was there for over 20 years, and... Everyone else in the company relied on him to solve their problems. So if somebody in sales or service had screwed something up, they would say, call Lou. I'll make a call to him. One or a number of his dealers would pick up the phone and call Lou, and uh, he would simply say, how do you want to spend your money? Um, <laughs> literally, you know, we get parts in exchange yeah. for some other screw-up or error. Um, and, and there was another guy, uh, Lou Rodriguez was his name, and then Frank Stevens, who was a genius on the technical side of things. He got moved into a sales position for a number of years, which he was not cut out for. But thankfully, they put him back into the sales position, uh, service position, uh, technical genius. He helped create a lot of the stuff we are still selling for law enforcement and authority motorcycles. Um, he's private now, but still active. I talk to him every month at least because we saw a lot of police bikes. And uh, those two people at least helped solidify um, pieces of it. Jed Webster, who Ted mentioned the other day, uh, he was fabulous. There were a lot of people that stayed in positions a little bit longer, but they keep moving the talented out. And most of the time, the talented people that show up on the motorcycle or motor rod, as it's called these days, side, end up on the automotive side. Hmm. Rarely get them back. Interesting. You know, that, that provides a little bit of insight I didn't know into German, probably business practice uh, and culture. You know, I'm uh, that, that's interesting to note. Bud told me a story. And again, like you said, we don't want to, uh, beat up on BMW here. That's not the, not, our, yeah, not, yeah. not our goal here, but there are some, fun, some funny things I think that, uh, can be brought to light. Bud told me a story, uh, that at one point, I guess you decided to sell Vespa scooters. And, uh, apparently it was dictated to you that you had to build a physical wall to separate uh, the Vespas from the BMW. And I 
when Bud and I were talking, uh, I termed that the the new Berlin Wall. So is that a true story? Oh, my gosh. The fact <laughs> that you called it the new Berlin Wall, I wish I could have thought of that back when we had to do that. <laughs> it is true. Um, Vespa Piaggio's model in the U.S. of having boutique stores was failing at a pretty rapid pace. You know, business is about dollars per square foot. And, you know, a 300cc Vespa scooter takes almost as much room as an R100R does. Sure. Uh, and But it was generating peanuts in the way of revenue for the dealers. And so they were closing up pretty quickly. Many of them were struggling. Some of them, thankfully, uh, were had found other things to complement. The, the Washington, D.C., uh, Vespa of Washington, D.C., was owned by a guy that had a fabulous furniture store on one side of his Vespa shop, and on the other side, a fabulous lighting and fan shop. That kept his Vespa shop in business. Um, But so their strategy was to go out and, all right, we've got to bail on the boutique store. Who do we partner with? And they said, all right, our products are not competition for BMW motorcycles, unlike, say, taking on Ducati or Triumph or something like that, where you've got a lot of overlap in terms of models in in the segments. So they went after all the best BMW motorcycle deals in this country. And in the course of two years, probably 35 to 40 of my peers took on Vespa. I was in an independent 20 group with quite a few of them, and they're all singing the praises. You know, it's an Italian manufacturer. They're a pain in the ass to deal with, but the products are great and customers love them. And, uh, you know, parts and warranty can be an issue, but the products are great and the customers love them by and large. And so we were one of the last, BMW dealers to finally say yes. Um, and we weren't quite as close to either Baltimore or Washington as some of the other dealers might have been to their respective cities. But nonetheless, we did well with it for several years. Um, but dealing with an Italian company made the Germans look like your fantasy wife. Okay. Um, there's no other way to describe it. And, um, and, and the problems with warranty and other things got bigger and bigger and bigger. They came out with their MP3, the uh, uh, steerable two front wheels, which was a fabulous product. It was in Texas for the introduction of that, and we were selling them left and right. And then one, and I'll squeeze in there that yes, in order to make this happen, BMW required a separate space. And we found what was a, uh, thankfully, a logical and fairly good place to put that wall that had a pass through that connected some built in shelving we had. Um, but yes, I will never forget now that the newer Berlin Wall. Yeah, that's funny. I mean, I'm just have I'm thinking of you know now you know Ronald Reagan, Mr. Hennig, build that wall. Yes, yeah, it, and it was it was a bad corporate decision. Even BMW came back and said that was the wrong thing to do. It made them look bad. Yeah, yeah. It make Piaggio look bad. It made them look bad. Um, but. Uh, Unbeknownst to us, and we found this out only because of the Maryland Motorcycle Deals Association that I was vice president of at the time, uh, we got a new uh, lobbyist and a new attorney. Um, the old one wasn't doing enough for us, um, and he was a facilitator as well at meetings. And this was a young, talented guy. Uh, he's still involved with our group. He also represented the New Car Dealers Association in Maryland. And at our very first meeting with Travis, he said, do you guys know, because two of us were uh, – Vessel Piaggio dealers, that they have been secretly lobbying the state of Maryland to change the law on the MP3, and we're all going, uh-oh, what's up? And mm. he said, well, according to the law, because none of us have bothered to look at this, you know, the manufacturer saying, here, you can sell this in Maryland, 
We take them at their word. But DOT and NHTSA would tell you how often that goes wrong. Um, and as it turns out that by definition, the MP3 was a, an illegal vehicle in Maryland. Oh, good grief. Um, if, if it had two wheels in the back and one up front, fine. But two up front and one in the back, not part of the designation. And when we made some further inquiries with both Travis and an attorney that we would speak to from time to time, he said, you're in deep shit, Bob. He said, if anything happens to a customer on those bikes, they're knocking on your door first. Wow. And, you know, it'll take you, it'll take you a long time to get the secret negotiations with the state of Maryland out of those back rooms and into a courtroom to defend yourself and make them pay up versus you. So we said, all right, line in the sand. We contacted Piaggio and said, you got 30 days. Make all accounts due. Come and take all of our inventory. And these these MP3s go first. We owned half of the inventory. They owned the other half. It got very ugly. I had a couple of conversations with the then president, who didn't speak very good English because he was Italian. And uh, we apparently pulled off something that nobody else, probably in the motorcycle industry, ever pulled off. We charged uh, Vespa Piaggio storage um, after sending them a, a letter of uh, <laughs> cease and desist and and end because uh, it was a breach of contract on their part. Wow. And um, it, 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 um, they never delivered it. So we just held on to the inventory that they technically owned. Um, we ended up taking, uh, we sold all the product that we could legally sell. We held the MP3s back, and we eventually got uh, clean Maryland title to them uh, from the certificates of origin we had. And when the time had expired legally that they now owed us more in storage um, than the motorcycles cost, um, and Maryland had changed the law. We uh, sold them legally, and uh, never looked back. Wow. And they never knocked on. And they never knocked on our door. They at the time were involved in a DOT and NHTSA lawsuit that could have cost them the U.S. operation because they had falsified um, uh, a variety of safety um, uh, specifications. Wow, um, it, it's, it's buried out there, but it's out there. Wow. Well, let me say kudos to you. Uh, for not folding like a suitcase uh, and standing up and uh, doing what was right uh, by getting what you were owed. Um, well, and, and thank you. That was yeah. based on the fact that the, the one thing I have never done in business is to experiment on or with my customers. I'm happy to try new things to make them happy, but I will not ever put my customers in legal jeopardy. And so when somebody is doing that to me, I know exactly where to draw the line. Great. Well, here's what I want to talk about is bring a trailer. Uh, so my here's my <clears throat> initial comment on this uh, is that uh, it's great for it. I see it currently as a seller's forum, not necessarily a buyer's forum. And I think the long term effects of how motorcycles are valued uh, and what this is going to do for the general hobbyist uh, who don't necessarily have 20 or $25,000 to buy an R80GS, all that remains to be seen. That being said, uh, it sure is a lot of fun to go look at bikes and, and see a lot of neat motorcycles on there. So I know you, you go on there on occasion. Uh, tell, me your, tell me your take on how this phenomenon has, has uh, latched on. So I want to, uh, before I answer that question, yes. because you pose so many good topics here, I want to answer one before that, and okay. then I'll make sure that I squeeze this into the allotted time we have here. Okay. Your Mount Rushmore question fascinated yes. me. Because um, I am asked all the time when people are at the museum and sometimes just in the dealership, what's my favorite motorcycle out of what I own? And I said, I, I answer people, I said, 
it's got to be 15 or 20 years since I could last answer that question with any definitive statement. I said there's just too many fun motorcycles that I own, too many great motorcycles that BMW and other people have built, even though my collection is all BMW except for two. And I said, so how about if you walk around and tell me what you like the most, and I'll tell you a story about that bike. Because um, each bike is special to me in some different way. Yeah. But my Mount Rushmore, Mount Rushmore was built a long time ago. They put four important president's heads on it. Right. Um, we might have a few more these days. And so my list is a couple of bikes longer. That's fine. We'll accept um, that. So I've got an R75-5, the R90S, the R100RS, the R100RT, the R80GS, Maybe the R100 GSPD, because it was such a distinctly different variation. Um, I would include the R65 LS for reasons that many may or may not agree with me on. And my last bike is that R100 R Classic. There you go. I will, I'll say this. The three that come up in every conversation I've had with everybody are the Slash 5, the 90S, and the first-year model, uh, the R80 GS, the first one. Those, sure. are, those are always the big... The big three on there, and there's some obviously some variation uh, therein. Mine are, of course, uh, currently the three that I have right now because I've been kind of you know building my own Mount Rushmore. So I've got an 80 GS, a white one. Uh, I've got an orange uh, 75 Daytona, a Daytona orange, and then I just bought recently uh, a 78 R100 uh, RS in that beautiful metallic. Uh, one-year-only gold paint finish. I've just lusted after one of those for years, and recently, uh, recently purchased one. And you're you are uh, in the minority of people that love that color. It's, uh, you <laughs> love it, or you don't. But but it but it was a um you know that was a period of time when BMW was being very bold with paint. I hate it. earlier, pretty much the only black. I mean, they had really changed their tune. You're a hundred percent right, and I'll admit this. I mean, I was born in 1970, so I'm aging myself or dating myself. Uh, but yeah, I just have a real my tastes, uh, and I tend to sort of gravitate back to that mid '70s style. It's just where I feel comfortable and at home, and I love those funky paint jobs. So good. I'm well, glad. I'm gl- you know. I still have my original Slash 5. We'll come back to that the next time we talk. Excellent. So, so back to Bring a Trailer. Bring a Trailer. I was introduced to Bring a Trailer by one of my neighbors just a couple of doors away who's a, a motorhead about cars, mostly BMW. He's got a Porsche and a, he's got a Bricklin and something else. Um, <clears throat> but I had not heard of it yet. They weren't doing much in the way of motorcycles when he introduced me. But uh, uh, Paul sent me a couple of links here and there. He said, hey, a BMW motorcycle showed up in this car site I go to all the time. And so I started be paying attention. And I have a car side. I've got, uh, um, I don't know, five or six cars going back to 1938 and coming up to, um, if I take my daily driver out, which is almost brand new, up to 2001. <clears throat> and um, and so I quickly started paying attention. You know, it's, it's like going to a car show, and it has only gotten bigger they're doing so many auctions every day. They are experiencing all the growing pains of a company that is growing too fast. I am both a, fan, a huge fan and a slight detractor um, that, of what they do and how they do it. That's interesting because uh, you're, everybody who I've talked to about this has kind of a love-hate relationship with it in a way. So you're not alone there. Continue. Yep. And so... 
leading up to the pandemic, what was taking place seemed to be a pretty good platform. They were still sort of embracing their enthusiast uh, uh, credo and origins. They wanted an exchange of information. They wanted people to say, hey, this is right, this is wrong, because people were getting an education there about every car on the planet and eventually lots of motorcycles, a few planes and boats tossed in as well, and a snowmobile every now and then. Um, But then they began to realize differently than, say, Facebook, that anything that wasn't a rah-rah comment wasn't helping them get the best price. And they're all about getting the best price. And so they began to clamp down on a lot of people. They would, and they have their, uh, they have a core group of people in every segment of automobile out there that will squelch things in a variety of ways. Uh, they have people on their staff that, um, are charged with communicating with sellers and buyers and just members that like to go to the site every day that do a good job. Some days do a terrible job on other days. So it's become more of a mixed bag. The pandemic came along, and this is my observation. What took place was that people that could ordinarily spend their very unlimited financial resources on things that we didn't participate in, the high end of cars would be one of them, of course, because this is mostly a car site, but unbelievable vacations, um, traveling around the world, all these things that took a lot of money. And now, for a while, they really can't do those things. There's some kind of restriction. We're being asked to quarantine. The world is more dangerous to take your family and go to Germany for two months or to France for a month, all that stuff. And all of a sudden, I mean, the switch almost went off overnight. People are showing up, and they are bidding unbelievable amounts of money on great cars, great motorcycles, and average cars. And average motorcycles. There was no rhyme or reason. I mean, I know, know plenty of the sellers of motorcycles. I know some of the sellers of cars. Plenty of the people know me. I'm one of the few people that doesn't really have an alias. My identity right. you can't trace that back to me. You are not even the basic, you know, third grade sleuth. <laughs> and um, and I got squelched quite a bit a number of times for pointing out what was clearly obvious to someone that had less knowledge than I did. Really? So you um, so you got flagged as uh, 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 a comment for some reason or yeah. something? Oh, a couple of dozen times at least. Wow. So I would I would also I've also got plenty of likes and, and I don't do it for the for to be the most popular kid no. in the block. If I see something that jumps out at me and I say, hey, you know, this is wrong or this doesn't look right or just, you know, sometimes a, you know a item will be listed for twenty two minutes and all of a sudden, the bidding's got up to ten thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's bothered to question twenty-seven things I saw at my first pass through the pictures while having a cup of coffee. Yeah. So you know your head explodes, and I know I'm not the only one. I know plenty of other people. The bring it trail has become quite the conversation off to the side. Yep. Um, there's, there's lots of, like any business, there's lots of positive reviews and 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 sometimes negative reviews. And I think their negative side has grown pretty heavily because they are trying to control the conversation in an environment where the conversation is the value. Um, I think they would be better off turning it loose unless somebody has really taken a low, cheap pot shot. And occasionally when someone's taken a cheap pot shot at myself or somebody else providing good information, we're the ones that get uh, flagged. But at any rate, um, so I've bought, and so to 
bring credibility. I have bought three bikes on Bring a Trailer. Oh, good for in you. The last, okay. In the last four years. Very select purchases. You know, one was to be able to resell, so I've got to figure out whether I can afford to do it and still make money, still make a customer happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, three wins, as I call them. Um, uh, one of the others was for the museum, and I think I paid fair money for a well-represented one-owner motorcycle. And the third one didn't sell at the auction, but I was the high bidder, and I got to come back and buy it, um, as happens in probably 10 or 15% of the cases. And I bought it literally as a donor bike for another bike I needed a driveline for. And that was the driveline I wanted. It was the only thing that bike had that I wanted. The rest of it will be parts on the shelf for customers to buy in a year from now. So as, um, a, as a buyer, it sounds like you've had some good experience there. Um, yes, I have. But uh, there's lots of other bikes I would have bought. But the prices that are, they're getting are unrealistic. No different than a housing bubble and a bunch of other stuff. Right. Um, I believe it will come down. Um, I equate this um, to what I watched happen at, um, I can't remember if it was Meekum or another auction group that's on TV regularly. Um, and eight, ten years ago, there was a huge tidal wave, a tsunami actually, in car sales going generating ridiculous numbers on TV because the auctions were being done live and people were paying through the nose and possibly the other end of their body (laughs) for the opportunity to be on national TV as the high bidder to buy that 1968 Plymouth Barracuda in purple or whatever the car was. Um, And then like clockwork, a high percentage of those vehicles, maybe 30, 40%. I don't think it was higher than that, but a high percentage of vehicles are coming back to the exact same auction, Hmm. exact same auction house, years later, and that seller is now getting their other 90 seconds of fame for losing 50000 or $150,000 <laughs> because they bought at the highest part of the market. And I think, you know, I honestly think that while there have been a whole bunch of fabulous opportunities, people got the car of their dreams, the bike of their dreams, mm-hmm. and they paid fair money, there's also a whole bunch of people that got the car of their dreams, the bike of their dreams, the boat of their dreams, the tractor of their dreams, and paid way too much because people that had money to just throw away were the ones they were bidding against. And the one trend that I have tracked that I've seen consistently for the last two years is that a lot of the, uh, what I think are the higher than they should be auctions. And again, things are worth what someone's willing to pay for it. So kudos to bring a trailer, kudos to the seller. I hope the buyer doesn't uh, cry too much when their time comes to do something else with their investment, hopefully amortize it out in the pleasure of owning that toy in the interim. But consistently, people that had just become a member within 30 days, 60 days, sometimes a few days, were the high bidder. So there's only so much knowledge you can extract from the mm, site. Yeah. Okay. From from the that you know group of Corvette buyers, that group of Ford Mustang owners, in that short period of time. And in, of, in the last couple of months, I watched a bunch of auctions. In the first day of a seven or longer day auction, something's already at twenty-five thousand dollars, and a week later, it sells for twenty-five thousand dollars. Right. So all of the fun, all the pleasure for all those people that like to participate, to make comments, to ask questions, to get a few bids in, probably knowing up front they won't win, is being slightly polished off the uh, shine. 
Interesting. So, and again, and again, I give them credit. They created something that the world needed. Um, I look at it almost every day. Yep. Uh, I've got the thing, my dream cars that I follow. One day when I sell some, most, all of my collection, <laughs> I might decide I can, I can, my heart and brain can finally wrap themselves around having that much money in one toy. Is it going to be a nine eleven of some sort? I'm just making a guess. Oh no, I am. A, I'm not. A, I'm not a Porsche fan. I almost got my wife almost actually helped me get a uh, an old uh, 356 from the second owner. Beautiful car when I turned 40. That was uh, 27 years ago, and I got to take that car home and drive it for a weekend, and I got it all out of my system in 150 miles. There you go. There you go. Well, so, look, Bob. Let's leave it. Let's leave it here. I really appreciate your time today, and we'll probably convene uh, maybe the first week uh, or so in February and get uh, get to some of these other questions I had for you and some other things you wanted to chat about. That's perfect. I'm going to keep my notes where I know where they are. Again, Bob, thanks so much for the time today. I really enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks uh, for being a part of this, and we'll catch up again soon. Pleasure, and I look forward to listening to the rest of Ted's, and uh, you sent me one other, and I can't wait to dive into that one. Wonderful. Okay, Bob, take care. We'll talk soon. All right. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, that is just part one of our conversation with Bob Hennig from Bob's BMW. More to come next time in part two. So with that, we'll look forward to catching up with you next time. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our theme music is from Jimbo Mathis. You can find him on the web at therealjimbomathis.com. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.